Matthew chapter 24, and reading from verse 42. Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the Master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant, whose Master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Fraser. Our second reading this evening is from the book of Malachi. Uh, Hopefully, thank you very much, David. Uh, Malachi chapter 4, and we're only going to read, what, three verses, the last three verses of the book of Malachi, the last three verses of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Malachi 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse." Amen. Well, we are just about finished our journey through a selection of the minor prophets. Uh, This is our last look at the minor prophets, certainly for some time anyway. And uh, we have looked, firstly, you'll remember at the book of Jonah, the one minor prophet that we are fairly familiar with. We looked at the foolishness of trying to run away from the Lord, and we also saw the greatness 
of the mercy of God as well. You'll remember that God sent Jonah to the Ninevites, a, a wicked people famed for their godlessness, their wickedness. And this is where the Lord sends Jonah to go. He is extremely reluctant to go there. Eventually, he does. He warns the Ninevites of this coming judgment. And amazingly, wonderfully, the Ninevites respond to Jonah's warning. They repent. They turn the direction of their lives around. They call out to God, the true and living God, for Him to be merciful towards them. And then Scripture gives us this amazing picture right at the end of Jonah, of Jonah sitting there grumpy at the grace and the mercy of God. He says, that is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And we challenged ourselves not to be like Jonah, not to seek to withhold the grace and the mercy of God from other groups of people, whoever they are, the very same mercy and grace and love that God has lavished on our lives in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then having come to the end of Jonah, we moved on to Obadiah. We saw the fierce anger of God burning against the Edomites. Uh, they had abandoned and betrayed their brothers, the Israelites. They had supported the Babylonians as they came against Judah and against Jerusalem. They had celebra celebrated the fall of Jerusalem. They had rejoiced to see the people of God sent away to Babylon as servants and as slaves. And God is furious at their betrayal. And we said, we might at first feel uncomfortable with the way that God speaks to the Edomites. But we ought to have cause to celebrate the fact that God is so angry at the mistreatment of His people. The Edomites have betrayed God's treasured people, and He is furious at that act of betrayal. Where were you in the day of their disaster, He asks. We might be uncomfortable with the fierce anger of God, but imagine God being indifferent towards sin. Imagine how awful that would be if He didn't really care about injustice and about wrongdoing, about slavery and about murder. A, a, a God who would be incapable of anger in the face of these things, would also be a God incapable of love. And so, we found ourselves actually rejoicing 
that God was angered by the way in which his people had been treated, the way in which his people had been betrayed by their own brothers, the Edomites. Then we came to Haggai, and uh, time has moved on. 50,000 people of uh, the Lord in Babylon have heard the call to leave Babylon behind and to journey towards Jerusalem. It's a long journey, a dangerous journey, a difficult journey. But 50,000 embark upon this journey. It all seems to go well. They get back to Jerusalem. They uh, manage to secure their plots, their spots. They begin to rebuild the temple of their God. The foundations go down. The young men rejoice and celebrate that the work of God has really begun. They can see the temple of God, the house of God beginning to to be built. But the older men weep tears, not of joy, but of sorrow. They are discouraged because the temple foundations are so small when they compare it with the temple that they remembered all those years ago with the greatness of Solomon's temple. This temple seemed like nothing. So they wept as the young ones celebrated and rejoiced. And then the people around the people of God felt threatened that the temple was beginning to be rebuilt. And they redoubled their efforts to discourage the people of God. And before long, it wasn't just the old men who were discouraged. The young people were discouraged too. And the work on the temple stopped. Sixteen years of excuses. We will get round to rebuilding the temple. But the time isn't quite right. Sixteen years of these excuses. And eventually the Lord says, that's enough. And he sends his prophet Haggai uh, to tell his people to consider their ways, to reassess their priorities, and to rebuild the temple of their God. And he accompanies this exhortation with a wonderful promise to say that the glory of the temple that they will build will be greater than the glory of the first temple. Uh, Solomon's temple, which seemed so much bigger and so much better in so many ways, but what mattered most was the presence of the Lord. And the Lord says to his people, rebuild my house uh, and I will fill it with my glory. And Haggai ends in quite a good note because the the people uh, hear the word of the Lord and respond to the word of the Lord and begin to rebuild again. And eventually, The temple is rebuilt. There is presumably a period of blessing before the people of God begin to fall into their old pattern, their old ways. And then we we turn to the book of Malachi, and by the time Malachi arrives on the scene, the people of God have drifted so far from the Lord. So they're back in the city of God. They've rebuilt the temple, the house of God. Everything is there for them. But if all that stuff is in place and their relationship with the Lord is not, then actually all that stuff is worth nothing. It's all only there to help them in their walk with 
the Lord, and they have drifted so far from Him and from the lives that they are supposed to be living as His people. Malachi doesn't make for easy reading. They try, the people of God, to, to take God and to put Him in the dock. And the whole of the book of Malachi is just a series of disputes between God and His people. It doesn't make for easy reading, but we see the mercy of God on every page of the book of Malachi, that God would be willing to persevere with His people despite the way that they are acting, despite the way that they are living, that God would be willing to enter into this dispute and to kind of stick with it all the way through he would be willing to, to treat them better than they are treating one another. He doesn't treat them as some of the men are treating the wives of their youth, casting the wives of their youth aside to take to themselves uh, foreign women to be their wives who worship foreign gods. God doesn't just say, I've had enough of you, and he doesn't just sweep them to the side and take to himself a new people. In his mercy, he, he sticks with them. He perseveres, and he gives them this wonderful invitation. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. And the reason for that invitation, not the goodness of his people, but the mercy of God. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O Israel, you are not consumed. So today we come to the last few verses of Malachi and the last few verses of the Old Testament. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave to him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. From time to time, I, I, I say, remember when you're reading your Bible and you come across one of these wee italicized headings, remember that's not in the original text. Don't let it skew the way that you read the text too much, um, because it wasn't in uh, the, the, the first manuscript that was written. But sometimes these italicized headings can be very helpful. And I can't help but think it would be good for us to have one of these headings in between the end of verse 3 and the start of verse 4. Malachi chapter 4 can be uh, confusing if you don't get the fact that verses 4 to 6 are actually a, a, a conclusion, a kind of summing up of what the Lord has said before, you can find yourself reading through chapter 4 and thinking, well, Elijah comes before the first coming of, of Christ, and then it talks about the second coming of Christ, and now here's Elijah again. Does he, does he come again? But actually, these three verses are a, a, a summing up and a final word from God to His people. What they have to have 
kind of ringing in their ears for the days that lie ahead of them. So, as we come to these final words of Malachi, I want to ask just a couple of questions. Firstly, what are the people of God to do? So, as we've worked our way through Malachi, we've seen a lot of the things that they are doing that they should not be doing, but what are they to do now? How are they to live their lives? Well, they are to wait and to watch for the coming of Elijah. They are to wait and to watch for the new Elijah to arrive on the scene. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. The Lord reminds them that they are to be a watching and a waiting people. They are to be an expectant people. The Lord is going to do something, and when He does it, they are to be ready. And if they are ready to receive Him, to hear the message that He will bring, then there will be great blessing. God's people will be brought back into line with their fathers in the faith. They will be brought back, as it were, into the, to the bosom of Father Abraham himself. But if not, if they are not ready to receive this messenger, then God will send a curse on the land. So there is good news and there is bad news. The good news is that some of these people, the people of God, they were ready and they did receive him. They, they recognized and they received this messenger, this new Elijah, and they recognized and they received the one that this messenger, the one that this new Elijah pointed to. Like uh, John and James and Peter and eventually Saul of Tarsus, reluctant as he was, the persecutor of the church, even he came to recognize and to receive this messenger. They came into line with their fathers in the faith. They, they trusted in the one the Lord had sent. Indeed, the apostle Paul, as Saul would come to be known, was the man that would write to Rome to remind the believers there that by believing in Jesus, they weren't turning away from the way, the way of their fathers. They weren't out of sync with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Actually, the very opposite was true. So Paul says, was Abraham our father justified by works? This is Romans chapter 4, verse 3. He says, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So some 
did accept the message that John the Baptist brought to repent, to turn the direction of their lives around, and to fix their gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to place their trust in Him, the Lamb of God, for the forgiveness of their sins. That is the good news. Some were ready. Some recognized Him. Some received Him. But the bad news is that most did not. Most rejected his message, and most rejected Jesus, the one of whom he spoke. The Lord Jesus came to that which was his own, and his own received him not. Even the ones best placed to recognize and to receive the Lord Jesus failed to. So, we ought to pose a question of ourselves. Am I ready? Are you ready? Have you turned your life around? And have you placed your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you continuing to head away from the Lord, trusting that you are too good or too clever to be rescued by anyone? Each of us have to make our choice and set our course accordingly. So firstly, what are they to do? They are to watch and to wait for Elijah to come. And secondly, how long did they have to wait? I can tell you uh, what my Bible says. This is how long they had to wait for the coming of Elijah. They had to wait four pages. They had to wait four pages. I turn from Malachi chapter 4, four pages, and I arrive at Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Four pages. But each of those pages is 100 years, 400 years before John the Baptist comes uh, to answer the prophecy of Malachi and others. 400 years. And you might say, well, no wonder they didn't recognize him. No wonder they didn't receive him. I can't remember something for 400 minutes, never mind 400 years. How could we possibly expect them to hear the voice of Elijah as they heard John the Baptist telling them to repent? How could we possibly expect them to see the Christ, to see the Messiah as they saw Jesus of Nazareth? Well, the answer to that is because God had given them all that they needed. You may think, well, it actually gets even worse. It's not just that there are 400 years, but those 400 years, you might know, are often called the 400 years of silence. The 400-year silence. If you, if you Google that, you'll get all sorts of articles and sermons that say things like this. This is a 
quotes from the internet, 400 years of silence, it is hard even to comprehend. But 400 years ago, Galileo pr proved that planets orbit around the sun. 400 years ago, Manhattan was purchased by the Dutch for $24. 400 years ago, the Taj Mahal was built in India. He says, as hard as it is for us to comprehend 400 years, the Bible tells us this is how long God's people waited to hear his voice. You see, at the end of the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophet Malachi, and then nothing. God goes silent. 400 years of silence. It's hard to imagine such a long time. But for the people who had seen God's miracles firsthand, 400 years must have felt like an eternity. And the longer God was silent, the worse things got. End quote. Is that true? It's half true. It's half true. For those 400 years, there were no more Haggai's, no more Obadiah's, no more Malachi's, no more Elijah's, clearly. But God's word was not silent. God's will was not hidden from his people because he had given them the law of Moses. And that should have been enough to keep them living the lives that they were called to live. So verse 5, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. That really is all they need to know, all they need to do. They need to remember in the biblical sense of that word. So to remember biblically is not just to remember up here. It's to remember up here and then to live in the light of that remembrance. They had the law, they had heard the prophets, that should have been enough to have kept them in the will of God, under the blessing of God, unto the glory of God. God had given them all that they needed to hear Elijah as they listened to John the Baptist. God had given them all that they needed to see the Messiah, to see the Christ, as their eyes fell on Jesus, the carpenter's son, Jesus, Mary's son, Jesus of Nazareth. They had all that they needed to see that this man was the Messiah. God wasn't silent, but they had refused to listen and to remember to live in the light of that which God had spoken into their lives. Sometimes it can seem to us that heaven is silent. We think, wouldn't it be great if, you know, we saw miracles in the way that they see miracles in the book of Acts? If I turned up on a Sunday and I knew that people were going to come in and be healed, if we heard the kind of prophecies that we read of in, in Acts or in the Old Testament, wouldn't it be great if we could see and hear those kinds of things? Wouldn't it be great 
Well, we have all that we need to live in the way that the Lord calls us to live and to know the peace and the joy that comes to those who live with the blessing of God upon them. If we see miracles, that is fantastic. If we see the sick healed, that is wonderful. If we hear of people in North Korea uh, who have never heard the name of Jesus going to their bed at night and having a dream of the Lord and waking up and giving their lives to Him, that is glorious. And we give thanks and praise to God for His sovereign grace. But do not be fooled. We have all that we need to know and to love and to serve God as we ought. We have all that we need to be the people that He is calling us to be. God has given us His Word, and that Word is sufficient to teach us who He is and who we are and what we need to do to bridge that enormous gap, i.e. to trust in, in Jesus. His Word is sufficient to train us to be the godly people that we are called to be in Christ Jesus and to grow in faithfulness and fruitfulness. Think of the story that uh, Jesus tells in Luke's gospel of a rich man and a poor man, and they both die. The poor man is called Lazarus. He gets a name in the story. We, the rich man doesn't, isn't given a name. And uh, the poor man has had a terrible life on earth, uh, until he dies, and then he goes to this place of paradise by Abraham's side, close to Abraham's heart, and the rich man is in a place of agony and, and uh, torment. The rich man cries out to Father Abraham. He says, send Lazarus over here. Send him over to help me. I'm, I'm in agony over here. And Abraham points to the lives that they both lived, and then he says, and also, there is a great chasm between us and you, and no one can cross it. And then the rich man says, then I beg you, send Lazarus back to my family. Let him warn my five brothers so that they don't end up like me. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. This is Luke chapter 16, verse 30. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham says, the law and the prophets, that's our Old Testament, they are enough for your brothers to do what they need to do, to repent and to give their trust to God. He has given us His words, and it is sufficient. I think Chris Rosie spoke about the Reformation a few weeks ago. That's one of the great uh, Reformation cries, is it not? Sola Scriptura the ultimate and final authority. 
the sufficiency of the Scriptures to teach us and to train us to live godly lives as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, yes, I know He has given us His written Word, but wouldn't it be great to spend some time with the living Word Himself, to spend some time with Jesus in the way that His early disciples did? Well, yes, it would be great. It would be great. But we must remember what Jesus told His followers all those years ago as He prepared to leave them. He said, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So we have the teaching of the Law and the Prophets, that's the Old Testament. We have the teaching of the Apostles, that's the New Testament. And we have the Spirit of God. Jesus ascended on high and true to His Word, faithful to His promise, He sent His Spirit down to fill His church. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they all point us to Jesus, don't they? The Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, the New Testament, the teaching of the Apostles, and the Spirit of God all point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have Him. We have Him. By His Spirit, He is always with us. We have Jesus, the King of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am His, and He is mine forever. We have all that we need to be found faithful when Jesus comes again. The Jews 2,000 years ago, by and large, not exclusively, but by and large, failed to recognize and to receive Jesus when He came. May we be found ready when He comes. We are also a watching and a waiting people. We also must be ready when the Lord Jesus Christ comes for us. May we be found ready. You'll remember from the, uh, the, the passage I read earlier that we cannot know the date that the Lord Jesus Christ will come. So don't believe the wacky websites. We will never know the date that the Lord Jesus Christ will come. But we must be ready. And so there is only one way for us to be sure that we will be ready, and that is to live ready. To live our lives ready for the day that Jesus will come. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too, says Jesus, must keep watch for you don't know when the master of the household will return, in evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. Amen. Let's live our lives awake, alive, 
and alert, ready for the coming of the Lord. Let's, to borrow a phrase from Haggai, let's consider our ways and make sure that we are living our lives in a way that makes sense, given that Jesus will come very soon. Let's be ready, trusting in Jesus, growing in godliness, waiting and watching in eager expectation for the return of our Lord. He has given us all that we need to be found faithful on that great and glorious day. We give him our praise as we stand to sing. Thank you for saving me.